Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And to introduce today's topic, I wanted to start off by referring to a news article that I found from last year. So this is a local news article from the Santa Clara, California area from March 2020. You remember you remember that scary time back when there was oh, yeah. a lot of panic buying going on because... Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID was just starting to dawn on people, and suddenly everybody was like, oh, yeah, okay, we got to stock up. We don't know when we're going to be leaving the house, and so forth. Uh, And so this article is referring to the fact that there were long lines at the Costco in Santa Clara, California uh, in March 2020. And one element of the story that I thought was very interesting was that the Santa Clarita Valley Sheriff's Station was on Twitter at some point begging people – to not to call 911 because of people cutting in front of them in line. Uh, mm-hmm. Their tweet read, please don't call 911 because people are cutting in front of you at line at the store. It ties up valuable resources for real emergencies. But the funny thing is that you would have to say this at all. I mean, it seems kind of obvious to me that somebody cutting in front of you in line at the store is very rude, but this is not a police matter. But I've noticed a lot of uh, you know informal reports and uh, and, and even in kind of uh, a recurring theme of don't be this person viral videos online lately is is people calling the cops on someone allegedly cutting in front of them at the drive-through line at Burger King or something like that, and it, it makes me wonder why would it be common for people to believe that cutting in line at a customer service point is a crime on a level that merits the summoning of armed officers of the law. Well, I guess we, we should point out that if if there is a situation where one party or even two parties are sort of violating the you know the the social norms of of lines and waiting in line it, that itself may not be a crime, but you could imagine where the resulting dynamics could rise to the point of a crime. I mean, it, sure, if, yeah. if it becomes an aggressive enough encounter, you know, then it, it could rise to the level of threats and assault. So it, not to say that it's an in, in, it's something that's in an entire separate universe and could never rub up against those those real uh, criminal um, activities. But yeah, the, the mere act of someone just like jumping ahead of you in line uh, and, and not acknowledging you like that yeah that does that is certainly not a police matter police have better things to do than uh, get called about that right but it's funny that at least some people intuitively think of the the idea that somebody allegedly cut in front of them in line at at a at a customer service situation is on the level of being you know robbed at gunpoint or something that you need to get the cops here about this well and, but you see people react very um alarmingly at times oh yeah uh, for, for instance, uh, okay, so, so right before this podcast, I went and I got some coffee, mm-hmm. and there was no line to order the coffee, but there was a line to wait on the coffee, uh, which was an interesting experience I'll get back to. But it reminds me of a very recent uh, experience I had at a coffee shop at an airport where there was a line to get the coffee, and then there was a long wait to receive the coffee. And... I everybody's wearing a mask uh, at the uh, at the coffee establishment, so it's it's extra difficult to hear what people were saying. Mm-hmm. And I had one of those moments where I thought my name was called, uh, my last name, oh, and no. I and I went forward and I I almost touched the bag of someone else's order, 
and it was it was this older couple and um and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought they said lamb. And the the uh, the, the the wife of the of the husband and wife uh, pair here, uh, she was like, oh, that's all right. It happens all the time. And the uh, and you know that's 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 reasonable. She was like, oh, that's happened to us. But the 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 man, he was he was angry, and he like grabbed it, and he was like making evils at me, like I was trying to, to steal his food. And as, and as he marched off, I'm trying to remember what was it he was saying. He was not saying good day, sir. He was saying. Oh, he was saying bye bye. He was he was like spitefully <laughs> saying bye bye to me, which is something I had never heard before. Uh, I've, I've never heard bye bye used as a as, as so aggressively, but mm-hmm. it was a very weird experience. And I guess if I'm going to try and put myself in 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 his shoes, if he thought that I was actually trying to to break in line and just randomly steal whatever food and coffee he had ordered. Um, then it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like cutting in line can be equated to theft. Like if everybody's in line to get the same thing at a store, like it's a lemonade stand, they mm-hmm. only sell the lemonade. If someone cuts in front of me, then they are on some level stealing my lemonade. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's amazing that even at the level of remove of you describing an experience that you almost had but didn't, uh, mm-hmm. I felt the dragonflies, you know, a light in my stomach. Like it, it was just, just, just terror uh, at at the idea of such a faux pas. Right. I mean, because I guess it, it does illustrate two different energies. Like we, we, yeah. I think a lot of us, if not most of us, have that fear of transgressing the the social norm of standing in line and waiting mm-hmm. on food and service. But on the other hand, uh, you know, sometimes we're we're extra on guard against violators of those social norms. Uh, So it can create very weird and and uneven energy. Yeah. The the idea of accidentally cutting in line is, is just horrifying to me. Like the the idea that I might do that is enough to, to cause that panic. Like I'm about to, you know, go on stage and speak in public or something, that level of, of apprehension. Oh, and I think we saw probably a lot of this during the pandemic because a lot of places that depended more on interior spaces had to suddenly depend on exterior spaces, which means lines that might be better managed in in an entirely indoors or in a par- partially indoors environment mm-hmm. were suddenly left to exist entirely outside the establishment. And I've seen cases of this where, like, clearly this was not what was intended. So the, the resulting line situation is maybe more confusing or counterintuitive and people fall, you know, show up and fall into it and, and, and maybe like miss where they're supposed to stand creates confusion, creates more uh, opportunity for misunderstandings. So what we're observing is that at least among lots of people, there is a deep, uh, powerful commitment to upholding the norms of the single file first come first serve line for all different kinds of uh, services and access to things. And when you observe this level of commitment to a norm, I think it's very easy to assume that maybe lining up single file for your turn at something is a deep, almost biologically mandated behavior that goes back as far as recorded history and is universal across cultures. But You should always be cautious about drawing conclusions like that, because it turns out in the case of the single file, first come, first serve line, this is absolutely not the case. Uh, There are a lot of fascinating features of of waiting in line or queuing, as it's more often referred to in the scientific literature. Uh, And we'll get into more of those as, as we discuss this topic for the next couple of episodes. But one of the fascinating things is that queuing is, to a large extent, 
historically and culturally contingent. Not everybody gets in line for things, and even in cultures where we do, we haven't always done it that way. Mm, yeah, queuing is it's it's a pretty interesting phenomenon because on one level. We often see this behavior as a means of self-organizing, sometimes via non-human directions such as signs or ropes. There's not, you know, there's not a person there to yell at you if you get out of line. Other times, there is a person there to yell at you, um, and, such as with, say, TSA agents who, mm, you know, right. they're doing an, an important job, but um, a lot of times they're not shy about raising their voice. <laughs> Uh, and other times, it's just out of necessity in cases where there are no rules, but there is a social pressure to form a queue of some sort, you know, where people realize, like, there's, no, there's nothing to indicate how we should line up in order to, uh, to enter an establishment or get up to the register. So people just figure it out on their own, sometimes poorly, sometimes mm -hmm. with, like, the line going completely across the sidewalk so that people can't cut through, things like that. And then oftentimes you see someone having to come out and say, let's actually make the line go against the side of the building, et cetera. Yeah, but I, I think one thing that's pretty amazing about lines is that if you're in if you're enculturated in lines, if queuing is a part of your culture and your upbringing, it's amazing how regularly people spontaneously organize into lines and how little problem they have with it overall. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately it comes down to a basic reality: some come first by necessity in order to assure everyone proceeds. And a lot of times that is a first come first serve situation. Whoever is first gets to stand in line first, um, and it just you know avoids chaos, right? Yeah. But of course, while queuing can seem very fair and democratic, uh, though though in the in the UK it was uh, it was even accused of it was accused of being a product of socialism. I, I found an interesting paper about that. Maybe we'll get into that more later. Mm -hmm. um, we have no shortage of ways to make queuing less of an even affair. Uh, various rules always seem to exist to allow people to legally, uh, you know, within the social contract, to legally break line, to form separate lines, faster lines, etc. So it can often depend on where you are in the line and who you are and who you are in the line, uh, what you're waiting for, etc., uh, to determine exactly how fair this whole system seems. Though uh, I find something that's interesting is that uh, if there are standing line breaking mechanics in place, mm -hmm. uh, those mechanics are often hidden from view in one way or another. Like the institution that has the line uh, that that allows some kind of organized line breaking for preferred waiters, uh, like they try to keep it sort of separate so people don't see somebody just cutting straight in front of everybody else. Oh, but but not at the airport. Um, yeah, you know, because it's basically like, all right, do we have any babies? Okay, let's get some babies on board. Okay, how about uh, old people, soldiers? Okay, uh -huh. rich people. Do we have any rich people <laughs> in the group? You know, it's it. it 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 that's not how they do it, obviously, but but sometimes it can smack of that, especially if you were in like loading group, um, you know, thirteen or whatever. Yeah, um, I guess there's no way to hide it if uh, it's an airplane. There's just this one access point, and everybody's waiting in the same place. But when it's possible, I I think a lot of places really do like to keep it keep it sort of out of view in some way. Yeah, I will say at airports I've been to, they'll often have have it set up so the TSA pre-check line uh, is. Is may, it's maybe like a little less obvious, but at the same time, you, like something like the TSA pre-check line is something they they want they want participants to take advantage of. So you don't want right. to hide it completely. Uh, so kind of like with your fast pass at uh, an amusement park, mm -hmm. you don't want it to make you don't want to make everyone miserable, but you do want to sell fast passes. Um, though I guess you don't want to sell exclusively fast passes. So, but I imagine that's worked out in the um, uh, the, the price gauge and all. 
Have you ever read the stuff about the uh, the alleged? I mean, I, I don't know if this is true for sure, but it is at least alleged that some amusement parks think of wait times not just as uh, something that's necessary, you know, because everybody can't ride the roller coaster at the same mm-hmm. time, but also as something that extends the perceived value of what there is to do at the amusement park. Because if you could just ride every roller coaster in order, you know what you got like an hour of fun there and then and there's nothing else to do you've already done everything so by having people wait in line for things it's not only a necessity it also allows you to stretch out the perception of having fun over the course of an entire day so people are like wow i got to do this all day it was really great huh yeah i don't know um i mean the thing about amusement for for my money i don't want to go from roller coaster to roller coaster because that'll make me sick i need some time mm-hmm. to settle down uh, I also kind of like a certain amount of anticipation building up to the ride. And some rides, your nicer amusement parks, tend to do a really good job of making your, your weight more pleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or, or uh, I'll t- another a specific example I'll point out is uh, the Netherworld uh, haunted attraction here in uh, the Atlanta area. Uh, often there'll be a long line, there'll be some sort of fast pass scenario, but you'll end up going through a museum of the haunted attraction as part of the line waiting experience, which is that kind of thing I really appreciate, um, you know, where it makes the, the line a little more part of the experience and not just this dull thing you're doing in order to have the experience. Yeah, uh, I have not been to a lot of amusement parks, uh, maybe not any as an adult that I can remember. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll think of an exception. But I remember as a child going to like Universal Studios, Florida. And one thing that, that they, they did something like that there where, say, you're mm-hmm. waiting in line for the Jaws ride and they've got a kind of backstory for you. So they've got yeah. TVs playing things that set up the ride. And I think something similar was true of like the Back to the Future ride. Like the ride has a backstory. And as you're going through the line, you're watching TV stations playing various segments of the backstory. Yeah. Now, it's interesting with both the Haunted Attraction and the Amusement Park ride. Essentially, these are examples of, of, especially with the Haunted Attraction, you're standing in line to walk through in a line. And in the Uh case of the, uh, the ride, you're standing in line to go in a circle and then leave and continue your line out of the uh, the exhibit. But a lot of times we're talking about standing in line for resources. Uh, and and this, this got me thinking, I was looking around a little bit of the animal world, and you'll, you'll often read something about something like queuing in terms of dominance among social animals. Uh, for instance, I was reading an account about how some baboons, uh, there's something with some with baboons, there's something like queuing that is arrived at after food is discovered and it's something that's governed by the dominant primate in the group. Uh, so it's not a very fair system of queuing by most human standards, but it is a system and it prevents right. the need for overt conflict and struggle amid these individuals. Right. So it's important to make a distinction because anytime you have multiple people trying to get access to the same thing and they can't all access it at the same time, you've got to have some system for ordering access. But what we're talking about when we say waiting in line is almost always understood to mean the uh, the relatively egalitarian first come, first serve single file line. Yeah. And which uh, is very which is very different than what the baboons are doing. Yeah. And, uh, oh, man, we haven't even got into the spacing of lines, uh, which, of course, has become certainly more of a thing during pandemic times, Uh, sometimes obeyed as part of the social norm, sometimes disturbingly ignored. Uh, But prior to the pandemic, you at least saw it with ATMs, where there was Mm -hmm. this kind of agreed upon social uh, contract that if you are waiting in line behind me at the ATM and I am at the ATM, you will like stand back a certain amount. 
Uh, like yeah. it, it's, it would be impolite, if not threatening, to stand too close to me during this transaction. What's that line from the SNL song, The Creep? I think it's something like, when you want to make a friend at the ATM, oh. do The Creep. <laughs> oh, yeah, where they're all dressed like John Waters. Uh, yeah. And I believe John Waters makes an appearance in that. Yeah. Uh, but the the point being, you, you don't approach people too closely at the ATM. Yeah. Um, now, this is kind of a stretch, but uh, I, I admit, but this got me thinking about another key example of line formation among humans, uh, not the vertical lines of cues or people following a path, but the horizontal lines of rank and file armed uh, combatants, uh, the sort of uh, ordered approach to the movement and action of human beings that has been vitally important in the history of warfare. Hmm. Because on one level, it's entirely unlike forming a line to use an ATM or to get by a hot dog, etc. But there is also a sense of it there as well, I think, if you, you know, if you sort of open your mind and com- compare the two, where a disciplined system is in place to ensure peak performance of the group, benefiting the whole group, but also the individuals within the group. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I see that comparison. Did you bring this up because you've been reading that blog about military history and analyzing Tolkien that you sent me? Yes, it is. Uh, oh, okay. That is the reason. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's really good because one of the things you sent me was an article or, or at least a quote about um, how the thing you see with medieval style or ancient style battles in movies where it's just a, an all-out melee, you know, a free-for-all where everybody's just fighting random combatants in whatever order it seems to occur to them, that this is not at least how battles were supposed to go in in ancient combat, where you'd be using spears or swords, handheld weapons. I mean, that in most cases, you want to be fighting in formation or you're losing. Yeah, that that blog is a collection of unmitigated pedantry uh, by military historian Brett C. Devereaux. And yeah, he he makes the point where if if it's broken out into just chaotic melee, uh, that means the battle has already gone poorly. And if if you're if you're you know you may have already lost at that point, you probably have already lost. But if you if you're going to win, then you haven't broke rank. Like the winners don't break rank; they stick together and stay in formation. And I think the same is true of standing in line. Like if people start breaking mm-hmm. rank, if people start panicking, then then it's all over. Like nobody gets to use the ATM machine if this order breaks down. Nobody gets to buy a hot dog or a cup of coffee. Nobody gets to board the plane. Yeah, of course. So nobody enjoys waiting in line. But you got to acknowledge that waiting in a first come, first serve line for the ATM is much better than using the shoving to the front method. Yeah. I guess unless you're really good at shoving. Uh, But to be serious for a minute, if you already use the shoving to the front method and you do actually get to the ATM, what happens to you once you get your cash? (laughs) I mean, Uh, this is a recurring problem, I think, if you don't have a well-organized system for, for getting people access to service points. Yeah, if you totally dismantle the social norms leading up to the ATM, then what about the rest of the social norms surrounding the whole experience? Though I do want to say that this doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that the single file first come first serve line is the only way to organize access to things. There are other ways that people have come up with sort of social rules for organizing access. This is just a very common one in the modern world, in the Western world especially. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering about a question, uh, which was, how much of our lives do we on average spend waiting in line? And I had some trouble finding a really solid, well-reasoned answer to this. But there is one thing, at least the closest thing I've come across, which I found in an article by Anna Swanson called, What Really Drives You Crazy About Waiting in Line? It Actually Isn't the Wait at All. This was published in the Washington Post. And for this article, Swanson interviews Richard Larson, who is a professor who studies 
queuing theory at MIT. That's actually an area of study. Now, it's a little bit broader than just people standing in person on their feet in a single file line. It's more about like uh, about like ordering access to things. And there are all kinds of mathematical theories about how to uh, maximize efficiency in systems that use various forms of queuing and so forth. And so Larson studies that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Larson estimates that, quote, altogether, some people spend a year or two of their lives waiting in line. Now, a big note here is that the some people is about the best you can do there, because the amount of time people spend waiting in line will have enormous variance depending on what culture you live in, what kind of business you do, whether you live in a city or in the country, etc. But for this common guess of one to two years, how would you arrive at that? Well, Larson's research makes him think that for many Americans, at least, the majority of their queue time is actually spent waiting in traffic congestion, Hmm. which is interesting because I wouldn't have thought about traffic as a form of waiting in line. But I guess by almost every way of defining it, really, it is. Yeah, I mean, we may not think about it as much, but we are you know, proceeding in lines. Uh, and mm-hmm. granted, there are varied lines. There's a certain amount of, of cutting in line that is that is very much part of the legal process. Mm-hmm. Though you do see breakdowns in this where it becomes super obvious, you know, where like, say, situations where a lane is closed ahead mm-hmm. and everyone needs to merge to the the right. Uh, and you'll have some people that are like, nope, I'm going to go as far in the left lane as possible. Mm-hmm. And then I shall uh, insist on being let into the appropriate lane, stuff like that. That'll at least I know it in me, it'll raise the accusation of, of line cutter, you know, or I'll, I'll be, you know, I won't actually shake my fist or anything. But I'll be inside. I'll be thinking that person, they are no good. They are they are breaking the rules here. So in practice, I hate it, too. But. I have a terrible piece of wisdom on the subject that I'm sure will cause your polite and orderly mind to revolt, but I have to share it. So among experts who study traffic queuing, the late merge is widely considered to be superior to the early merge. Uh, Basically, the thinking is that if, say, a two-lane highway is narrowing down to one lane for construction, Drivers should use all the lanes available to them for as long as they can and then take turns one by one merging into the bottleneck. Uh, Now, this doesn't necessarily move the cars through any faster than an early merge system, but it still is more efficient because it reduces the backward stretching length of the traffic jam. Though I did find at least one case where it was found to speed up the traffic moving through the the bottleneck. There was a New York Times article from October 2016 by Christopher Maley about late merging, and it it cited a study from the Colorado Department of Transportation that found uh, late merging in work zones led to a 15% increase in the volume of cars passing through and that it cut the length of the backup on the road in half. Uh, But either way, it's also considered superior because it's safer since the merging one at a time in in the zipper-like fashion tends to happen at a predictable way at lower speeds than early merging does. So so I hate it too, and when I see somebody running down the open lane and, and merging late, it looks selfish. If you do it, it feels selfish. When you see it, I'm like, you jerk. But but it's probably, unfortunately, what everybody should be doing for the greater good. Well, I have a hard time imagining that the person, the, the people that I often see doing this are doing it because they're, they're well acquainted with queuing uh, theory. Uh-huh. And, and they're like, I'm doing the responsible thing. Don't look at me weird. You know, I imagine they're, they're also being 
aggressive in other aspects of their driving experience. Right. But then again, queuing theory uh, professors, they have to drive too. So perhaps the yeah. last person that I judge harshly was Richard Larson. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's quite possible. Uh, were you in Massachusetts at the time? No, but, you know, maybe maybe he was going to Florida. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, so the the idea is that the majority of time that people spend waiting in line on average, again, there's going to be huge variance from person to person, but on average is probably waiting in traffic congestion, which is in a way waiting in line because you are queued up for access to something. In this case, what you're usually queued up for access to is a, a bottleneck in the throughput of the traffic on the street. Mm-hmm. So how do you get to the one to two years number? Well, uh, Larson explains as follows. Suppose that a home-to-work trip on a Sunday morning takes you 30 minutes, but on a working weekday, it takes you 60 minutes. That corresponds to 30 minutes each day, each way, of traffic-caused queuing. 60 minutes of traffic queuing each day, or 300 minutes each week. If you make reasonable assumptions about five days a week of driving like this, both ways, for an entire career, then one comes up with figures of one to two years of of your waking life spent in queues, mostly rush hour traffic queues and slowness, which is equivalent to queuing. So that's very back of the envelope, and that's just traffic, but it does make you realize how much of modern American life is going to be characterized by simply waiting for access to things. Uh, Though it's also interesting to me because I was thinking, well, some people might quibble with whether traffic actually counts as queuing or not. And and that raised the question, why? It's sort of in itself interesting. Why would people not think of traffic as a form of waiting in line? I would say it is it's definitely waiting in line. It's even more dangerous waiting in line because yeah. you're in a, a a large vehicle that can cause fatalities. You are uh, you are also I mean, without even getting into the whole issue of road rage, you're in a mm-hmm. you're in an area uh, where we we see the social norms sometimes take on different forms and it becomes it can become more difficult to associate those other cars with individual people mm-hmm. uh, in ways that you don't see in an actual in-person line. Um, I guess on one level, I'm tempted to say, well, if you're in your car, at least you can listen to a podcast. But of course, with mobile technology, you can you can if you if you think to bring your headphones, you can do so in a in an actual in-person line as well. So I don't know. Sure. Okay, here's another queuing theory question that that I've wondered about. Let's say you're waiting in line for a number of service points, maybe three bank tellers. There are a couple of different ways that the bank can organize the waiting process. Uh, So, for example, they can have individual lines for each bank teller, and you just pick which line to get in. Or there can be one single snaking line, and once you get to the front of it, you go to the next available teller. I was wondering, is it actually is one of these actually more efficient than the other, or are they about the same? Well, it turns out there's an answer to that, and it's sort of what you would guess if you think about it. This also was by way of uh, Richard Larson in that same Washington Post article. On average, wait times for the two systems are about the same. So, you know, you average it out over a lifetime, it's not going to make a major difference. But there is much more variance for wait times in the multi-line system. So there is a greater chance that you get through either very quickly or you get stuck for a long time. So I think the individual line system can be thought of more as the gambler's system, right? When you want to roll the dice on your wait time, that's the better way to go. But if you want to have a more predictable experience, the serpentine line is better. 
Though, of course, the, the, the having multi, the multi-line system is going to be the one where you inevitably end up saying to yourself, oh, I picked the, the wrong line. Or perhaps you'll say, yeah. oh, I picked the correct line. But um, uh, so I guess the experience is going to be a little more different. Uh, it's going to be a little different depending on it. Now, of course, it's not actually possible that that it would really be the case over the course of a life that the other line always moves faster. So the fact that the other line always moves faster really tells us something about human psychology, right? That mm-hmm. we tend to notice more when things are not going our way. Yeah. Now, the mini short lines approach, of course, also lends itself to tiered systems, stuff like TSA PreCheck or uh, Speed Pass and Amusement Park. Uh, and depending on how this is arranged, it might make for increased efficiency uh, and or give some individuals or groups an unfair advantage. Or maybe it's a fair advantage. It really depends on your vantage point on these particular uh, incidents. Uh-huh. Uh, I wanted to go to a, an historical example on this. I was looking around and I was thinking, well, you know, queuing, you know, given that this is something that, that people have had to do for a long time, like, and, but you do see some cultural differences. What's a, what's a nice, like, ancient example of queuing? Mm-hmm. And I, I found a pretty good one, I think. It's, uh, it's from the ancient world, and it will require us to visit uh, the Oracle of Delphi. Now, we've, we've, I don't think we've ever really talked about Delphi in depth on the show before. I think it came up briefly in our bicameral mind episode, <laughs> uh, but we could totally do a whole series on it because there's a lot of interesting angles. You, know, you have mythology, history. There's mm-hmm. also uh, there's a whole um, chemical discussion to be had as well. Oh, yeah, about what, like uh, huffing uh, volcanic gases possibly mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. Uh, but, he, but here's the basics. Uh, the ancient Greeks considered Delphi to be the center of the world, and it's here that the um, the Omphalos of Delphi, mentioned in, our pre, in a previous listener mail episode, this is where you would find this artifact, which is supposed to be the, the, the stone um, uh, of the god. Yes, I believe fed to Cronus in, uh, in lieu of his own son Zeus so that Zeus could, could live instead of being munched. Yeah, so the, the, this artifact found its home there, and it served as kind of the navel of the world. But it was also the location of this vital temple of Delphi, where one might consult an oracle about the future or the past. Uh, now, the oracle would be uh, someone known as the Pythia, and this was, it would be a female conduit for the god Apollo, uh, someone serving as the oracle. And you would see people arrive here from all over the, the essentially the, the known world in the, the region surrounding Greece. Uh, they would pursue matters of love, statecraft. You would have ambassadors showing up to see uh, to determine like what course of action should be taken at a, at a state level or you know what accounts for state level at the time. Uh, mm. Businesses, uh, you know, if you had business inquiries, you might go. So a lot of people were coming in. You need to find out if your son is going to depose and kill you. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, and there are various origin stories concerning uh, the oracle here, but the one uh, which was given uh, in the first century BCE by the writer uh, Diodorus was that a goat herd discovered a cave, and the fumes from the cave caused him to become untethered from the now and to experience both the future and the past. Thus, the establishment of a temple and uh, you know and arranging a particular individual to to serve as the oracle and providing an orderly means for people to seek these sacred divinations. Okay, so it seems like what you've got here is a service that a lot of people are going to want and they can't all get at the same time. Yeah, and so you got to manage that. Um, so yeah, a lot of people coming in, it becomes a, a major center of banking and commerce. And I found a, a really interesting book by an author by the, name, by the name of Michael Scott titled Delphi, A History of the Center of the Ancient World, published in 2014. And as Scott explains, they turned to a system of queuing. Uh, So I want to read a quote from this book. 
quote, the consultants who would have had to arrive probably some days before the appointed consultation day would now play their part. They first had to purify themselves with water from the springs of Delphi. Next, they had to organize according to the strict rules governing the order of consultation. Local Delphians always had the first right of audience. What followed them was a system of queuing that prioritized first Greeks whose city or tribe was part of Delphi's supreme governing council, then all other Greeks, and finally non-Greeks. But within each section, there was also a way to skip to the front, a system known as promantia. Uh, Promantia, the right to consult the oracle before others, could be awarded to individuals or cities by the city of Delphi as an expression of the close relationship between them or as thanks for particular actions. As Oracle PreCheck. Exactly, yeah. And so your city might be awarded uh, Promantia, for instance, for paying for a new altar or something to that effect. But but it's interesting. It, it is kind of like a speed pass or one of those, if you ever go to a place where they have special parking places for the donors uh, that, that help fund <laughs> a, like a, I don't know, performing arts center or a botanical garden, that sort of thing. It's kind of oh, like okay. that. But it also shows that for a very long time, human civilization has had to work out how to manage people as they move to and through various systems, especially if it's something like this, where there's there's only the one oracle. Like they can't see everybody at once. You need a system in place. And um, and it but it's ultimately going to be more complicated than just a first come, first serve. That's right. And this brings us back to the idea that uh, while the, the single file first come first serve line might feel like it, you know, it might feel to us like it is so deep and so obvious that it's just a part of our biology. Once again, it's something that is somewhat culturally and historically contingent, and it's it's not something that was all that's always in place everywhere in history. I was reading some articles uh, trying to find like where this convention really got popular, and uh, one thing I found was a number of articles about a book by an author named David Andrews called "Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster?" That seems like kind of a, a pop history of queuing. And Andrews argues, at least, that the first-come, first-serve, single-file queuing uh, system is mostly a recent phenomenon, and that it actually has its origins in the French Revolution. Uh, He deduces this in part from the 19th-century Scottish historian and essayist Thomas Carlyle, who wrote extensively about the French Revolution in a three-volume chronicle that was uh, first published in 1837. And one of the things that Carlyle observed about post-revolutionary France was the change in modes of customer service. He said that in their bakeries in Paris, customers would line up in single file for service in what were called queues. Queue meant tail in Old French, a tail like an animal's tail, originally coming from the Latin coda or cauda. And uh, quoted in an AP article I was reading about this book, uh, there were basically political connotations to the idea of waiting in queue for service, uh, that it was supposed to be a demonstration of commitment to the values of the French Revolution, the slogan of liberty, equality, and fraternity. It meant patiently waiting on your turn, you know, no matter what your job was or your station. Uh, and, And Carlyle summed it up in the sentence, patriotism stands in queue. Yeah, this is this is interesting how there are different ways of looking at the line and the sort of the, the democratic nature of the line, because, again, you'll also see accusations of the, the line as a as a manifestation of socialism. You'll see it critiqued. Uh, this was a common critique of, of um, 
of, of the Soviet Union back in mm. the day and talking about the bread lines and having to wait in line uh, for bread, uh, right. you know, as if it were a, you know, a, a sign of something not working within the institution. Right. Um, well, I think the problem there, like it, to the extent that that is a problem, the problem there is scarcity, not yes. the fact that it's a first come, first serve system for access. But like the line became emblematic of the scarcity. Right. And this actually leads, I think, into a uh, that's an excellent lead into our discussion of queuing psychology, because, yeah, how do you perceive the line before you were in it? How do you perceive the line once you are in it? Because let's say you're you know, you're 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 out and about and you're like, oh, I'm, I think I'm going to drop in at this coffee place. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Sure. And as you approach, you see that there is a long line. Uh, or, you know, a longish line anyway, to acquire said coffee. So mm-hmm. how are you supposed to view that? You could view it like saying, oh, good, they have a system. They have a system for me to get coffee. I can go get in line and I can totally acquire it. You know, maybe it looks like the line's moving. Or you might say, oh, man, there's a line. I Maybe they're running out of coffee. Maybe this is a scarcity, scarcity situation. Or perhaps you're concerned, ooh, maybe they're understaffed. Maybe they can't properly attend to everybody who wants coffee today. Uh, you know, there there's so many different ways of viewing it. And, um, and and certainly when you start looking at the like the, the marketing research on it, uh, it is readily identified that there there's an economic cost and a psychological cost to standing in line, you know, because everybody yeah. in line that's waiting is somebody that you 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 generally have not yet um, tended to. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, granted, you can have multiple line systems like the line to um, to to order and then the line to get your food, et cetera. Um, but there's a potential economic cost uh, associated with that line. And then there's a psychological cost. What is that individual doing while they're waiting in line? Are they frustrated? Are they um, are they angry? Are they uh, pulling out their phones and going to one of the review sites so they can uh, you know leave a nasty review because they haven't uh, received their coffee yet? Yeah, exactly. So a ton of the psychological research about queuing has actually been done in the context, like you say, of like marketing and consumer behavior research in, in the business business world. Uh, But even in that context, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's been found. Uh, Some of it, I think, will ring true to your experiences. Some of it might be more surprising. One of the things that really rings true to my experience is that people experience waits as longer and as less pleasant when they don't know how long the wait is going to be and they don't understand the reason for the wait that that's like the the real that's the red zone that's really bad yeah uh, i i have to admit the place that i got coffee this morning though though i love it it's a great place is a similar situation because there was no visible line to order But it was just a lot of people waiting on their order outside. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the time, and of course, I went into it having read some of these studies. So I was thinking a lot about our our recording today uh, and and maybe had a little extra ammo uh, to to consider whilst waiting. But, yeah, your mind starts wondering, Okay, I wonder what's going on here. Are they understaffed? And you start looking at other people to see if they're frustrated and see Mm -hmm. how everyone is. uh, And and then you get suddenly... In, in my case, uh, too, I found myself worrying, oh, man, I think I'm about to get my coffee before these people who are here when I got here. Is that going to feel weird? Because then I'm sort of cutting in line. I mean, not in a way that where I bear the blame, but in a way that could still be socially awkward, you know? Oh, well, this actually ties into one of the studies I wanted to mention today. Do you mind if I cut right to this one real quick? You're going to cut it ahead of me? In the outline for this episode? Okay. I want to cut in line on the outline just re- because it ties into what you just said. Okay, um, go for it. Well, this is going to be very brief, but one of the questions I was wondering about is, okay, so you just assume you know what fairness in queuing is, right? Because when you mm-hmm. see somebody 
like cutting in line, that is obviously a violation of the fairness principle that you've got in mind when you're, when you're queuing up for something. Uh, but there are other principles at work as well. And so uh, there was a study I was looking at by uh, Rong Rong Zhou and Dilip Soman in Psychology and Marketing in 2008 called Consumers Waiting in Queues, the Role of First Order and Second Order Justice. Uh, and so this looks at actually two different senses of justice about waiting in line. One is the question, is the line being served according to a first in, first out principle, i.e., you know, in order, no cutting in line. And the second principle is, are people in line all waiting approximately equal amounts of time? These two things are actually not always coterminous, and sometimes they go against one another. For example, if you're at a grocery store and somebody has a you know huge cart full of tiny items, they're buying the entire spice rack off the shelf mm-hmm. or something, and they want to pay by check, and they get in front of you in line, you might have to wait way more than the average customer. So that's one type of unfairness you could perceive. But then, of course, the other thing would be, well, what if the the store just said, like, well, why don't you come in front of this person, right, uh, you know, even though they got there before you? And so the authors looked into the question here, uh, do, do customers care about both of these things? They found that, yes, people actually do care about both of these types of fairness. But they also found that customers care about adherence to the first-in, first-out principle more than they care about the equal waiting time principle. Ah, so an individual with a large cart, they're likely to take more offense at, at the, the, uh, the, the person at the cash register saying, can we let that person with one item go ahead of you? Um, whereas if it's a situation where you're approaching in your large cart and they say, actually, the person who was ahead of you had to go back and get an item, but now they're back, can they go ahead in front of you? Then they, you, would, you would probably be more okay with that because they were still ahead of you in line. Sorry, that's a little convoluted. No, no, that may well be an implication. I mean, I don't know how this would always come because once you introduce real world scenarios that that like brings in some other things. But yeah, yeah, I'd say in general that that kind of principle could be true from this. Yeah, because there are other social dynamics that come into play, right? Like if you were a young, able-bodied person with a large cart and the person with one item is an elderly individual, you know, then you're going to perhaps be more inclined to be like, oh, yes, please let let them go first. Yeah, and I think in general, people feel very differently about advantage that has been offered to someone else versus advantage that has been given to someone else without your consent. Right. The same person who would gladly let somebody with fewer items in, ahead of them in line if they if it was their idea might get really mad if the if the clerk said, you know, what, why don't the, why doesn't this person go in front of you? Yeah, yeah. It, it, was it my idea to let the like the the weightlifter who's buying one muscle milk go ahead of me? Because <laughs> uh, if I if it was me, I'd be like like you know then then it's all right if I say, hey, why don't you go ahead of me? You just got the one thing. But yeah, if the cash register person, the cash register is saying, wait. Let the muscle milk uh, buyer go first. He has yeah. only the one muscle milk. We must honor this. Uh, but then to come back to our ATM example, the first in, first out principle might devolve into the shoving principle. Right. And I don't want to shove with the muscle milk guy because he's pretty jacked. Now, here's another interesting spin on all of this. So how does the presence of a line and our place in a line impact our perceived value of the thing we're waiting in line for? Hmm. Be that thing, uh, you know, it could be an experience. We're waiting to get on a line or, or take a flight. Or it could be an item we're buying. It could be that cup of coffee, that scone or that hot dog, what have you. 
So I was looking at an article from 2010 titled, A Silver Lining of Standing in Line, Queuing Increases Value of Products. This was published in the Journal of Marketing Research. It's by Min Yoon Koo and uh, Ayelet Fishback. Uh, and they point out that, first of all, waiting in line obviously has both an economic cost and a psychological cost, like we said. Mm-hmm. Long lines can send the message that something is popular and in demand, but lines can also impact customer uh, satisfaction or impact a business's performance. And they point to several different studies on this topic, but they were particularly interested in the less studied positive attributes of standing in line. So again, there's no doubt that a line can send a signal about the perceived value of the thing waiting at the end of the line, but they wanted to know how the experience of queuing affected expectations of enjoyment. This is interesting because it makes me think about cases where somebody makes certain instances of being willing to wait in line a part of their sort of personal brand or identity. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you might be proud of the fact that I waited overnight in line to be the first person to get tickets to see the new Star Wars movie or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I I am committed. In a way, it's kind of like proving, like, only someone this committed deserves to be first. And uh, it's it's an interesting spin on the whole uh, first-come-first-serve scenario. So uh, the authors here, they say, quote, we propose that looking behind and perceiving real or uh, illusionary progress signals an increase in the product's value. As a result, the consumer will not only expect to like, but also actually like the product more and increase his or her expenditure. So, again, the idea is you're really looking forward to buying that apple, but then the experience of waiting in line and seeing people behind you in line, mm. that makes the your anticipation of enjoyment of that apple even greater. Oh, yeah. It's got the seeing people behind you in line. More and more people lining up behind you. That makes you feel like, hey, hey yeah, I, I really got in there at the right time. Yeah. So this is, of course in line with the sunk cost effect, which the authors cite. Mm -hmm. The more time and effort that I've sunk into something, the more fixed I'm going to be on the idea that this was worth it, even if I've been burned in the past. So the thing you're waiting in line for then becomes more valuable than it was when you began waiting in line for it. So the study itself, which is like a series of, I think, five studies total, is is relatively small, but the results are still interesting. And I'm not going to get into the methods of each one because you can imagine how they conducted this. They had people stand in line and they, uh, mm-hmm. and they questioned them and they manipulated things a little bit to uh, to see uh, you know how people reacted. Uh, and it's, it's pretty obvious from the results what they did. So mm-hmm. study one found that the perceived value of a bagel sandwich increased in keeping with the absolute number of people behind the individual in line. Okay, so you see more people coming in behind you, you like your sandwich more and more. Right. Now, study two found that you could experiment with the number of people behind the individual in line to increase the perceived value of the food sample, but adjusting the number of people ahead had no measurable effect. Okay, I don't know how exactly that shakes out with their method, but that sounds to me like it might be Not so much the fact that you had to wait a certain amount of time to get something is what increases the perceived value, but seeing other people wanting the thing, uh, as demonstrated by their being behind you in the line and and making you think of yourself as toward the front of the line, increases the value. Yeah, yeah. The idea that there are more people behind you yeah is is important and mm-hmm. and i think also it gets into the idea that the line is moving you know yeah. i am no longer last in line 
So study three and four drove home that the more you increased focus on the people behind an individual in line, the greater the perceived value of the thing they were waiting on. And I found this especially interesting when I think about the various lines I've stood in for, say, uh, amusement park rides, because Mm -hmm. some of them do kind of force you to realize how many people are still behind you in line, but others snake you through in interesting and novel ways, put you through, you know, novel surroundings. Um, Though sometimes in those, you still get a glance back. You'll occasionally get that moment to look back and see where you were previously. And I imagine given the amount of design that goes into, you know, some of these major uh, U.S. amusement parks, that is probably intended. There's probably some bit of research where they're like, look, it's great to, to um, to give people the feeling that they're you know touring a haunted museum or something on their way to ride, but right. we also need to remind them of how far they've come. Yeah, so lines. If you got a big serpentine line for a ride, maybe you should wind it around one way mirrors so the people toward the front of the line can look back, but the people at the back can't look ahead. Exactly. That seems like that would be very much in keeping with this study. Like yeah. people need to know that there are a lot of people behind them in line. Uh, the, the I guess the the main time you need. I don't know if it's possible, but the main time you would want to hide this from them is if there are very few people behind them in line. Right. Because that's when they're they're not going to there's not going to be the benefit of this effect in place. That is a bad feeling. So we've been focusing on, uh, you know, obviously businesses want to try to avoid uh, discomfort and displeasure coming from having to wait in line because it's generally understood correctly that most of the time waiting in the line is is unpleasant. People want to spend less time doing it. But there can be times where the line itself is kind of pleasurable, at least in my experience, and it's when there's a line that moves very quickly. Uh, you know, you get in a line and you just zip right through it. I mean, that mm-hmm. almost kind of feels good. Yeah, yeah, especially if your expectation is that it will likely move slowly. Um, so yeah, there's always that, that point, uh, or there's often that point It's unfortunately not always that point. There's often that point where you're like, oh, wow, that, that line moved pretty quickly. Or, uh, or one that I often find myself saying is, oh, looks like we got here at the right time. That one, especially yeah. <laughs> if you, you find yourself pretty far ahead in the line, or there are a lot of people behind you, um, then you, you, you kind of pat yourself on the back. You're like, oh yeah, I hit it at the right time, right before the lunch rush. I think I saw that recently on a like meme list of things dads say. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, as a parent, especially, you're always having to put positive spins on a situation uh, where the, the child may think it's the, the end of the world that you're waiting at all on anything. And you have mm-hmm. to say, like, well, hey, look, look at the people behind us. You know, uh, look how far we've come. Look how fast this line is moving, et cetera. Accentuate the positive. Yeah. So we'll probably get into this more in the the next part of the series. But one thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up today is uh, is one example of the difference between objective wait times and perceived wait times. Uh, there are just tons of studies that have been done on all different kinds of things you can do to make uh, wait times in various forms of queuing feel longer or shorter. Obviously, mm-hmm. usually uh, businesses want to find ways to make them feel shorter. And a one strange one I came across was a study by Steve Oakes published in the journal Psychology and Marketing in 2003 called Musical Tempo and Waiting Perceptions. So you call in for customer service on something. You're on the phone. What, what do they do while you're waiting on the phone? Most of the time you get some music, right? Right. Yeah. And, and, if it's, and if it's an episode of The Simpsons, it'll be something that is kind of cheekily connected to the thing you're waiting on, right? Oh, yeah, like when they call in with the uh, the Krusty the Clown doll that's trying to kill Homer and it's singing Everybody Loves a Clown, so why yeah. don't you? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, there's often stuff like that, but you might wonder, okay, what kind of, what kind of thought goes into choosing the music that's, uh, that's on the line? I mean, maybe no thought. It might just be random. Who knows what different businesses do, but there could be some actual, uh, research informing what the musical selections are because this study found a, uh, a real relationship between people's, uh, satisfaction with wait times and their, the perceived duration of wait times based on how fast or slow the the music was the beats per minute hmm so the author here did a thing that that was pretty clever instead of having to instead of playing different you know selected songs from popular music which people might already have associations with that could screw things up instead the author here used a digital technology to play the same instrumental music samples with uh, and, and with variability by tempo, just to isolate the variable of tempo and play basically the same songs faster or slower and see how that would affect people's uh, perception of wait times. Uh, they, they, they did this during uh, students having to wait on undergraduate registration for, for a college. And what the author found here was a significant positive relationship between the tempo of the background music and the perceived wait time. So what that means is slower tempo music made people feel like the, the wait time was less and faster tempo music made people feel like the wait was going on longer, which is actually a little counterintuitive to me. I, I might have assumed the opposite. Uh, but, uh, but it, it is sort of in keeping with the kind of music I more often hear when I'm waiting on hold to, to get something, you know, I'm queuing on the telephone. It's, it's not usually, they're not usually playing motorhead, right? You know, it's, it's (laughs) something, it's very like slow and languid. It's supposed to be relaxing sounding music. I remember, uh, way back when we were, when we were owned by discovery and we had to call in for a meeting, there was some hold music, uh, in the waiting room for, for our meeting software. And one of the songs was something I called the Spanish Villa song. Oh, yeah, it was kind of a Spanish guitar type thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it was very, it was very like, uh, you know, a nap on a sunny afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, I, I think this makes perfect sense because I think of, like a nice fast tempo song, I think of uh, the Bee Gees staying alive, oh, and okay. like that's a song when you hear it. You if you hear it while you're walking, you are going to quicken your pace and walk along with that song. It's a song that makes you feel like you're getting stuff done. You're going places in life. It is the complete opposite of what waiting on hold feels like. So it it does seem like like playing staying alive would be a terrible idea for any kind of um, you know uh, on hold music situation. Yeah, I guess you're right about that. I, I guess I, I just wouldn't have thought that. Uh, but so uh, there is a wrinkle to this, though. The effect of the music tempo on perceived wait times is dependent on the objective length of the wait time. So it breaks mm-hmm. down like this. For short waits, uh, defined in this study as between 4 and 15 minutes, slow music not only reduced perceived wait time, it reduced perceived wait time below objective wait time. So if you're waiting less than 15 minutes, slow tempo music on average actually made the wait feel shorter than it actually was. Huh. Whereas fast tempo music made it feel uh, significantly longer than that. And then the control with no music made it feel even longer than the fast tempo music. So no music was the worst condition of all. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No music would be the worst, it seems, because then you don't even know if you're on hold anymore, right? Like the music lets me know, even if the music were were incorrect if the music were like fast paced and making it it uh, everything stretch out more at least i know that i'm still connected right 
Oh, that that's a good point for telephone examples of this, especially. Yeah. Um, but so the, the, the interesting thing was the benefits of slow tempo music over fast tempo music disappeared with longer waits. So once you get into between 18 and 25 minutes of waiting, uh, suddenly the, the slow tempo music isn't any better than fast tempo music, though uh, maybe both uh, conditions of having music are a little bit better than no music at all. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. All right. Well, I think we need to cut it there for part one, but we're going to be back in another part to talk about all kinds of other things about queuing. Yeah. Now, certainly, if you have thoughts, go ahead and send them in, though. Uh, you know, your experiences with waiting in line and how they match up with some of what we've discussed here. Uh, and yeah, join us for the next episode. We will continue the journey. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed, uh, which is the, the podcast feed you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. You can check out core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday. We've got a little listener mail for you on Mondays and Fridays is Weird House Cinema. Those are the episodes where we don't really talk about the science and the culture so much as we just talk about some weird movie and maybe tie in a little science and culture if we want. But uh, this is just our way of closing out the week. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.